we begin by taking a look at verse 6, 1 John chapter 5. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. John has been speaking throughout this letter about the importance of who Jesus is and why it is so important for us to understand who Jesus is and to believe upon the right Jesus. We may say Jesus and say we believe in Jesus, but if you think that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer and uh, uh, somebody else is some, believe it or not, religions that call themselves Christians believe, and if I believe that Jesus is, well, the Son of God and and the, the second person of the Trinity, as the Bible teaches, we believe in two different Jesuses. That's why John comes back over and over again to the importance of the point that we believe in the Jesus who is really there, the, the Jesus who is real. And in this particular verse, verse 6 of 1 John 5, uh, John challenges us to believe in the Jesus who came by water and blood. You might scratch your head and say, what does that mean? To believe in the Jesus who came by water and blood, well, simply put, he's trying to suggest several things to us. And the first one is that I don't think you can get any more down to earth and just substantive than water and blood. I mean, that's real stuff. And he's trying to tell us that Jesus was a real person. Now, this is a theme that John's repeated in his gospel. He started out in the very first chapter, the first few verses, saying that which we've heard, that which we've seen, that which we've looked upon, that our hands have handled concerning the word of life, this is what we declare to you. You see, going about in John's day was a funny doctrine about Jesus. People had no problem believing that Jesus was God. In John's day, they had a problem believing that he was really man. And people would go around teaching that Jesus, when he walked on the beach, wouldn't leave any footprints because he walked a millimeter above the sand and he didn't have any contact with anything flesh and blood or material. And if you went to touch Jesus, your hand would pass right through him because he was an exalted spirit being and not a real man. And John takes a look at that teaching that was going around in his day and he says, it's nonsense. Jesus was a real person just like you and I, and it means we can identify with him, that he's a real person. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever thought about the belief or heard it or been challenged with the idea that Jesus is just some kind of spiritual phantom, but I bet everyone in this room, to some degree or another, has been challenged by the idea of the faraway Jesus, that Jesus isn't real, that Jesus isn't close to us, and friends, he is. Remember, Many years ago, being in a church, and they had like a gymnasium or a fellowship hall, and up on this big mural in this, in this room, a big, huge painting, and I remember it so vividly in my mind, there's Jesus. And first of all, I guess it was Jesus. You knew it was supposed to be like Jesus, but the guy didn't look like a first century Jew by any means. Looked like a red-headed Irishman to me, but... Uh, you know, it was supposed to be Jesus up there, and Jesus is, is standing there, and, and he has these glorious robes on white and red, and, you know, just looking official and everything, and he has this look on his face. 
He's not happy. He's not sad. It's just kind of a blank expression. But there's those eyes, you know, the eyes that seem to follow you all around the room and those paintings of Jesus. And there's Jesus and he has his hand outstretched. And you know what's in his hand? His heart. And I don't mean like a Valentine heart. I mean like you see the ventricles and the aorta and all that stuff. And it's grossing me out. (laughs) And I'm thinking... Man, this isn't real. This, this is a distant Jesus. I hope when I get up to heaven, Jesus is going to hold out his heart to me like that. And I'm thinking, what's this? Friends, you know, the, the real Jesus isn't the far away, distant, weird Jesus like that. He was a man. A real man. And that means he knows what you're going through. You know, whatever difficulty you're facing right now, and for some of you, you've come here this morning and you might have a pleasant enough face, you're hanging on by your fingernails. Jesus knows where you're at, and he knows what you're going through. He's a real man. He's been there. It's the real Jesus, and that's what John's trying to tell us. And he says, we can know this because he came by water and blood. And we scratch our head and that say, John, what, what do you, what's that? And then you start looking in the commentaries and all the Bible scholars and experts, and you know, you get about five of those guys together in a room, and you come up with about seven different opinions as to what all this stuff means. So you read some of them, and they'll say, oh no, we know what water and blood means. Water means our baptism, and the blood talks about the cup that we take at the Lord's table. You know, that's what's being represented here, Jesus coming to us in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. I scratch my head at that one. I don't know what, because it says that Jesus came by water and blood. And they might say, well, he comes to us in baptism, and he comes to us at the Lord's table. And I suppose there's a sense in which that's true, but it doesn't say he comes, it says he came. It's talking about something that happened in the past. I don't think he's talking about our own baptism and the Lord's table here. Other people think that water and blood in this passage, what it's describing is the water and blood that poured forth from the side of Jesus while he hung on the cross. Do you remember that from reading the gospel accounts? There's Jesus. He's, he's hanging on the cross, nailed there, and he's already given up his spirit. He's already yielded his life, and his body is hanging there lifeless on the cross, and the Roman soldiers trying to hurry things up. Because, you know, a person could conceivably, and it happened in the ancient world, they hang on the cross for two or three days until they finish dying. But the Passover's coming, and the Jews don't want people hanging on crosses as the Holy Passover approaches. So the Roman soldier's supposed to go there and and get a club and break the legs of all the people hanging on the cross, because when your legs are broken, you can't support yourself properly on the cross, and you, you die of suffocation. And so they're supposed to hurry along the people on the cross, you know, Jesus and the two thieves there. And I suppose they came and they broke the legs of the thieves. But when they come to Jesus, they take a look and they, you know, this guy's dead. We don't need to break his legs. Well, let's prove that he's dead. And by the way, when they didn't break his legs, they were fulfilling prophecy, weren't they? The Bible says not a bone of his should be broken. And what's interesting, they didn't know they were fulfilling prophecy, but they were nonetheless. And they they took a spear and they thrust it in Jesus' side, you know, right under the rib cage in the soft part of, of, of the abdomen there, right under the rib cage, up into the heart cavity. They thrust that spear and out of it came forth an issue of water and an issue of blood. And John says, I saw that and I'm telling you that it's true and I testify that that's the case. Now, number one, we know that because of that, we know that Jesus died. You know, friends, sometimes you'll find people who say that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just kind of fainted. I don't know what to do with that. 
I don't know. Can I just say the cross wasn't to make people faint. It was to kill them. And Jesus died on the cross. And you know he died because you know what it indicates when blood and water flows forth from a person's body and that part of their body? It indicates that their heart has ruptured. And that in the sac that surrounds the heart, there has uh, sort of secreted out blood, of course, and then a watery serum. And when that sac is burst, outflowing forth from their side comes forth an issue of water and blood. You know, Jesus died of a broken heart. That was the biological cause of death. Of course, he died because he wanted to pay the price for our sins, and he laid down his life. Death couldn't take him until he yielded himself to death. But an autopsy would say he died of a ruptured heart. And so people say, well, that's the water and blood that's being spoken of here, the water and blood that came forth from Jesus' side. But I, I, don't see, I don't see how Jesus came by water and blood, by the water and blood that flowed forth from his side. So I don't think it's baptism in the Lord's Supper. I don't think it's the water that came from his side. Uh, other people think, and this has some credibility to it. I, I might be able to buy into this one. They say the water and blood that it speaks of is the water that Jesus was born in. They, you know, we think of a person being born uh, when they're born from the womb, that there's a sack of waters that the child is in. And, and as the woman goes into labor, the waters break. And that's his being born of water. He came by water and he came by blood. He, he died on the cross as well. And that, that has some point to it. But, but I, I still don't think that that's exactly what John's speaking of here, though that might be the case. I think that what he's really pointing out is, is the water of Jesus' baptism and the blood on the cross. Those two, if you will, bookends of his ministry. His ministry began when he was baptized in the River Jordan and his ministry was fulfilled when he died on the cross and shed his blood. And friends, and in both of these things, Jesus showed himself to be a real man identifying with you and I. Do you know why Jesus was baptized? It wasn't because he was a sinner. It wasn't because he needed to repent. John the Baptist knew this. When Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized, John said, what? I'm going to baptize you? You should baptize me. And Jesus says, listen, I know what you mean, John. But let's do it because it's fitting to fulfill all things. And Jesus submitted to baptism, not because he had any sin to repent of or to be cleansed of, but because he wanted to identify with you and I. He wanted to look you and I in the face and say, I'm one of you. And when Jesus died on the cross, did he die for his own sin? Was it his own crime or sinfulness that put him up there? Was it his own sin that was being judged on the cross? No, my friends, it was our sin. It was Jesus looking at you and I across the centuries and saying, I'm standing in your place. You're the guilty sinner, but I'm going to take the guilt that you deserved. I am standing in your place. This is the real Jesus. And so I would say that the, the best way to understand this is to speak of the, the water of Jesus' baptism and the blood of his crucifixion. And he's making a plain that Jesus was the Son of God just as much in his baptism as he was at the crucifixion. You know, everybody believes that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, at his baptism. The Father spoke from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, I am well pleased. Who could deny that Jesus was the Son of God there? And then he goes out and he heals people and does all these spectacular things. Yes, we can see that he's the son of God there. But did you know that there's some people who taught back in John's day, and this teaching is even present in our own day. They say that Jesus wasn't the Christ, but that he 
had the Christ Spirit. And he received the Christ Spirit when he was baptized. And you know, the Christ Spirit left him at his crucifixion or before his crucifixion. They can't imagine that the Messiah, that the Christ, that the Son of God would hang on a cross. But friends, he did. And that's why John says, not only by water, but by blood also. He was just as much the Son of God, just as much the Lord of glory, just as much our saving Messiah as when he hung on the cross, as when he was baptized and it was declared from heaven that he was the Son of God. So friends, it says very simply here, verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. You see, that's the job of the Holy Spirit, to bear witness of who Jesus is, to tell you and I who he is. You know, some people think that the, that the Holy Spirit is into self-promotion. You know, like he's his own PR agent, and that he's out there trying to, you know, drum up attention for himself. You know, that's not the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit's job is? Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will testify of me, Jesus said, of himself, Jesus That's the message of the Holy Spirit. If you're really listening to the Holy Spirit this morning, you know what he's telling you? He's telling you, look at Jesus. Here's Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. He's there to testify of Jesus Christ. And so the Spirit and the water and the blood are all consistent witnesses in telling us who Jesus is. Look at verse 8. It tells us that these three agree as one, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. It isn't that the life of Jesus tells us one thing and the death of Jesus tells us another thing and the, and the Holy Spirit tells us the third thing. No, they all speak in agreement. And we can know who Jesus is because of the, the water, the blood, and the Spirit. I don't know if you noticed this as we were reading through verses uh, 6, 7, and 8, but there's a funny margin in my Bible, a little footnote here. Let me read it to you. It says, uh, uh, footnote 17, it says, N-U text and M text omit the words from in heaven through on earth in verse 8. Only four or five very late Greek manuscripts contain these words. I don't know, but as I read my New King James Version, I read this and I think, Wow. Matter of fact, I've seen other Bibles, like the New International Version or the New American Standard Version, where these words that are highlighted as maybe questionable in the New King James Version, they're not even included in the New International Version or the New American Standard Version of the Bible. And I look at that and I say, wow, what's that? I mean, are there some words here that don't belong in my Bible? Is somebody messing around with this Bible of mine and putting some things in here? Or... Maybe they do belong, and some people are going around saying, you know what, I don't, I don't think this belongs, and let's take it out. That makes me a little nervous. I don't know if it makes you nervous. I'm thinking, what's next? Are they going to cross out John 3.16? Was Romans 8.28 next on the list? It, all things don't work together for good anymore? I get a little nervous when people start saying, well, this belongs, or this doesn't belong, or, or what's going on with this? Friends, I'm standing before you this morning as your pastor, and I want to tell you with all the conviction in my heart that I believe that these words, and let me read these words to you, it's in the middle of verse 7 through the middle of verse 8, that these words, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness on earth, I believe that those words were not written by the Apostle Paul, excuse me, by the Apostle John, And I don't believe that those words belong in our Bibles. 
I'm pausing to build up a dramatic pause here. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, I, I don't know about you, but I, I think there should be some questions spinning around in your head. You should be saying, Pastor, you're usually not standing up before us on a Sunday morning saying this doesn't belong in our Bibles. Do you have any good reasons for that? I hope you're asking that in your mind right now. Well, let me give you the reasons why I don't believe that those particular words belong in our Bible. First of all, those words occur in no Greek manuscript until the 1500s. 1500 years after the time of Jesus. Now, friends, the Bible wasn't written in English. It wasn't written in King James English. Originally, the New Testament was written in an ancient form of the Greek language. And, of course, they didn't have photocopiers or printing presses back then. When you wanted to reproduce a copy of the Bible, you had to do it by hand. And that's what a manuscript is. It's a handwritten document. And you go through and take a look at all the ancient Greek manuscripts, and you won't find any of them until the 1500s that have this verse in it, except for two. They find one from the 1200s and one from the 1300s, that have these words in them. But you know what these words are? They're written in the margin. They're not written in the text itself. They're written as a note in the margin. That's one reason I don't believe these words belong in our Bible. Let me tell you another reason why. When you go through the writings of the earliest Christians, I mean, I've got a marvelous set of books in my library called The, the, the Early Church Fathers. And it goes through the first 500 years of the church. And it's volumes after, you know, people walk in my office and say, have you read all those? No, I haven't read all of them. But man, I tell you, I've looked through many of them. I've researched certain issues throughout them. When you look through the writings of the early church fathers for the first 400 years of the church, nobody quoted this verse. Nobody. They quoted 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. They quoted 1 John chapter 5, verse 8. But they didn't quote this passage. And you know what? In those days of the early church, there were a lot of controversies about the Trinity. And if John wrote this, and if this was in your Bible, wouldn't you quote this verse to settle any dispute about the Trinity? Wouldn't you quote this verse and say, hey, you know what? There are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. That would like pretty much settle it, don't you think, about the Trinity? They never quoted this verse. Do you know why? Because it wasn't in their Bibles. The Apostle John didn't write this. I'll give you a third reason. You know, the Bible was translated into a lot of languages in the ancient world. It wasn't translated into the English language until centuries and centuries later, but it was translated into languages like Syriac, Arabian, Ethiopian, Coptic, Sahidic, Armenian, Slavonian. In all those ancient translations, you won't find this verse because John didn't write it. Now, there is one ancient translation that it does appear in, it's not very old, but, you know, maybe around the year 800, 900, 1000, in the Latin Vulgate, which was the standard Bible for the church for hundreds of years, this verse began to appear. Now, if you're saying, David, I'm confused. If these verses, if these words in verse 7 and 8, if John didn't write them, how'd they get in here? Well, I have two suggestions. Remember those manuscripts I told you about where somebody wrote it in the margin? Now, I suppose a lot of you like to make notes in your Bible, and I think that's a good thing. You write a little note here, you know, and on the side, and that's a good thing. But what if you had a handwritten copy of the Bible, and then you handwrote a note in the side? How would you know later on 
if you were reading somebody else's copy, whether or not that was just their comment on the passage or whether they said, whoops, I forgot this and need to put it in. That could have happened. Somebody just wrote a comment on the side and then a later copier said, whoa, I think they meant this to go in here. And then in their next copy, they included it in. Or, you know what I think is more likely? I know this is more likely just from my own life. I think somebody who was trying to copy the Bible thought that they'd help God out. (laughs) And, you know, put in a, a really good statement about the Trinity. Can I just tell you, you don't need to help God out that way. If you just study the New Testament and take a look at it, the doctrine of the Trinity is just woven within the fabric of the New Testament. And I could quote you passage after passage and, and uh, section after section, scripture after scripture that talks about the truth that there is one God in three persons. I mean, we could talk about that all morning long, but it's there and God doesn't need our help. Now, you may be asking now, well, Pastor David, if John didn't write these, and if some guy a thousand years or so ago or more, put this in a copy, then how come it's in my Bible right now? Well, for some of you, it's not in your Bible. If you have a New International Version in front of you, you'll find it as a footnote, Uh, perhaps in the New American Standard as well. But in the New King James, in the King James Bible, it's in there. Why? Well, it's kind of an interesting story. In the year 1520, a man named Erasmus wanted to write a new edition of the Greek New Testament. He was a scholarly man, and it was a time of real learning, the Renaissance in Europe. So what he did was he got together all the ancient Greek manuscripts he could find, and he said, I'm going to produce a good working copy of the Greek New Testament. And it was a good copy. But as he went through and he researched and he looked at all the ancient Greek manuscripts he could find, he didn't find these words in any of them. So you know what he did? He didn't include them. So he published his Greek New Testament. People read his Greek New Testament. And all around in the Christian world at that time, the leading Bible translation was the Latin Vulgate. And these words were in the Latin Vulgate. And so when they uh, read his Greek New Testament, Erasmus's, they said, Mister, where are these words? They're in our Latin Bible, but they're not in your Greek Bible. And Erasmus said, I'll tell you why they're not in your Greek Bible. It's because I looked at all the Greek manuscripts and these words aren't in there. I don't know where they came from, but they didn't come from the Greek. And this is what God inspired. Well, people were outraged, and they started a big argument, and there was a big debate. You know what Erasmus said? He said something he shouldn't have said. He said, listen, if you find me one copy of a Greek manuscript that has these words in it, I'll put it in my next edition. Do you know what somebody did? They wrote out a Greek manuscript of the New Testament and handed it to Erasmus and said, here's your Greek manuscript. And he opened it up, and there were the words. Erasmus knew that this was not an ancient manuscript. He knew it, but he couldn't prove it. You ever been in that situation? You know it, but you can't prove it. And because he gave his word that if somebody gave him a Greek manuscript with those words in it, he'd include it in his next edition, he did. And Erasmus's Greek New Testament was one of the foundational documents upon which the King James Bible and the New King James Bible were written. And that's why It's in the King James and the New King James Bible. Now look, let me be real straight for you. If any of you are asleep right now and you're just saying, blah, 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 man, what's next here? (laughs) Let me tell you a few reasons why I think this is important. You know, the first reason why I think this is important is because I don't want anybody here to leave this room this morning 
doubting the reliability of the Bible. If you sit here this morning and say, look, you know, well, then maybe this book isn't from God. Maybe it is just a bunch of writings from man, you know, and if there could be this mistake here, who knows what else is wrong with it? Let me tell you something. Something like this should not make you doubt the reliability of the New Testament. Do you know how many passages there are where there's a question about what the original Greek text really meant? I mean of any kind of significance. I'm not talking about one letter. But where there's some kind of significant issue, well, does it say this or does it say that? Do you know how many of those there are in the Greek New Testament? There's 50. You say, wow, 50. David, that's a lot. Well, don't think of it in terms of the number. Think of it in terms of the percentage Do you know what percentage of the New Testament text is in question? One-tenth of one percent. I challenge you to go open up your Los Angeles Times newspaper this morning, the Sunday paper, and you tell me if one-tenth of one percent of what's written there is questionable in its accuracy or where it came from, or even in typographical errors. No, friends, the Bible is an amazingly reliable document. And let me point this out. Do you know how many uh, foundational Christian doctrines, or Christian doctrines at all, are based on any of those 50 passages? Zero. None. None. God has preserved his word and kept it reliable so that we can trust in it. In addition, when a passage like this is inserted... The textual evidence from the manuscripts makes it stick out like a sore thumb. Look, some of you may be kind of new to this church, but those of you who have been coming for a while, have you ever heard me talk about this before? Have you ever heard me explain like this? guy came up to me between services and he said, I never thought I'd hear my pastor talk about what's not in the Bible. But you don't hear me talk about this, do you? Because it sticks out like a sore thumb. This is truly unusual, and that's why I'm pointing it out to you. So what's the harm? I'll tell you what the harm is. I think, I think that, that whoever wrote this, whoever included this, it shouldn't have been included in the Bible. This is what the harm is. Let's say you're talking about the truth of the Trinity with some religious person who doesn't believe it. Let's say a Jehovah's Witness. They don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe that the Holy Spirit is even a person. They believe the Holy Spirit is a force like electricity or the wind. They don't believe in the Trinity. And let's say you're, you're debating with a person like that and you say, oh man, I got him. Let me read to them 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. And so you, you take it out and you say, hey, listen, I want you to hear this. There are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And you fold your arms, you go, yeah, what about that? And they say, oh, you poor misguided soul. Don't you know the manuscript evidence? And they start going into all this stuff, and then pretty soon you're thinking, oh, man, uh, Maybe it's not true. I mean, maybe a bunch of Christians were just trying to cover up something. And maybe the Trinity isn't there in the New Testament at all. And now I don't know what to believe. Friends, do you you see the damage that can happen when, when somebody tries to help God out in a place where he doesn't need our help at all? Now, I think that applies to a lot of lives right now, doesn't it? I trust you're not out making copies of the New Testament by hand and faced with the issues of a manuscript. But in your life right now this week, you may be trying to help God out in an inappropriate way. And maybe the Lord would just say to you, you know what? Uh, Thanks for the thought, but I'll do just fine on my own. And you don't need to help me out here. You'll just make the situation worse. Let me be God. And that's what we need to do. 
Well, the, the text of 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 through 8 should read like this. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Jesus' life, death, and the Holy Spirit all give us the same message about who Jesus is. And this message continues on here into verse 9, where he says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. I love what he says in verse 9. He says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Now think about it. Every day you receive the witness of men. Every day you you turn on the weather report and it says, it's going to rain this afternoon. And so you take an umbrella. You just received the witness of men. You know, I could get a call one morning and and a guy says, wow, David, I'm down here at Malibu Point. And it's peeling off four to five foot, beautiful waves. It's just glassy. It's great. And you know what? There's four guys out, which would be a miracle of God if that ever happened that way. And he says, you know, you got to get out here. You know what? I'm going to receive the witness of men and I'm going to go out there. We receive the witness of men all the time. But when God says something, how slow we are to believe it. I don't know about you, but who's more trustworthy, God or people? I think we can trust the living God who sits enthroned in the heavens more than we can trust any person. And we can have a trust in that, a confidence that we don't have to come to God with a blind faith. We can say God's trustworthy. When he says it, I can believe it. I'm taking it on reliable testimony from someone who can be trusted. You know, God speaks to our heart with the same reliable testimony too. Did you see that at the end of verse 9? He says, For this is the witness of God, which he's testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Friends, if you're born again, if you believe in Jesus Christ and have had your life transformed, you know it. Well, how do you know it? You know it. Well, can you explain to me how exactly you know it? You know it. Now, does that mean to say that uh, even if you know it, you can't be attacked with doubt sometimes? Of course you can. Does it mean to say that there's someone who could be deceived about this and they think they're saved, but they're really not? Yes, that's possible. But friends, if you're born again by the Spirit of God, you know it. You have this witness within yourself. Now look what he says next in verse 10. This is heavy. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. When we refuse to believe on Jesus, when we reject the testimony that God has given us regarding his son, we're calling God a liar. Friends, here John is exposing the great sin of unbelief. Most everyone who refuses to believe God doesn't intend to call God a liar. I don't know how many people in this world intend to stand before God face to face and say, I think you're a liar. I don't think very many. But do you know that your unbelief, that your refusal to believe on Jesus Christ and to trust in him as your Savior and Lord, that's calling God a liar and it's a sin. Charles Spurgeon said, The great sin of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is often spoken of very lightly. 
and in a very trifling spirit, as though it were scarcely any sin at all. Yet according to my text, and indeed according to the whole tenor of the scriptures, unbelief is calling God a liar. And what could be worse? What could be worse, my friends? Well, what if you're saying this morning, well, you know, David, I want to believe, but I can't. Friends, let's be accurate. It's not that you can't believe, it's that you won't believe. Nobody's making you call God a liar. I, 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 I want to not call you a liar, but I can't. What? No, if you want to believe, you can believe. It would be more honest if you would say, I will not believe. Your unbelief is your fault. It may also be your misfortune, but it's your fault. Your unbelief is a crime. It may also be a disease, but it's a crime. We need to believe what God has said. Friends, it's a wrong thing to call a trustworthy person a liar. And God's trustworthy. Well, how about if somebody else says, and maybe you've said this, maybe you're saying this this morning. What if somebody says, well, I'm trying to believe, and I'll keep on trying. Oh, friends, don't say that. It sounds kind of innocent. It almost sounds spiritual to say that, doesn't it? But let's just take it over into interpersonal area. You come up to me and I, I say, you know what, man, there's this great restaurant down the street. You should go and check it out. Great food, good prices. They give you a lot of food. Go there. And you look me in the eye and say, David, I'm trying to believe you. And I'm going to keep on trying. Now, what, what do I take from that? I take from that that you think I'm such a stinking liar that even though you want to believe me, even though you're trying real hard and you're giving me all the credit you can, you just can't bring yourself to trust me, even though you really want to. But David, you're such a confirmed liar. You're so untrustworthy that even though I want to give you all the credit in the world, mm, I just can't. Friends, don't say that towards God. Please don't say that towards God. You see, my friends, the Bible never tells you to try and believe. It says simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He's proven everything he needs to prove. He proved he was the Son of God by his miracles. He proved he was the Son of God by his loving death for you on the cross and payment for your sins. So just trust him. He deserves your total trust, your childlike confidence. Don't refuse him your trust. When you come to God and refuse to believe him and refuse to trust him, you're calling him a liar. And you don't want to go there, my friends. Now let's see how he finishes up here in verses 11, 12, and 13. And this is the testimony. Well, this is God's message to us, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Friends, you know that's where eternal life is. It's not in your own works. It's not in church attendance, though I'm very pleased you're here this morning. It's not in doing this or doing that. Eternal life is in Jesus Christ. And did you know that some people go to church their whole lives but miss Jesus? I hope you're never one of those. And that's why I want to keep driving at home, maybe till you're kind of tired of it. It's all right if you're getting tired of it. You need to trust in Jesus. He he has eternal life and nothing else outside of him. This is the testimony. And so he goes on to say, I love how he finishes it here in verse 13. 
These things I have written to you who believe. We'll stop right there. Is that you? Are you one of those who believe? Well, then this is written for you. Number one, for those who believe in the name of the Son of God, here for two reasons, that you may know that you have eternal life. And secondly, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. The first thing John wants you to do is he wants you to know that you have eternal life. You may believe, but do you know you have eternal life? Do you know? Is it a settled issue? Do you know it? Do you know it? You know, some people would stand before you and tell you that you can't know. You can't know till you die. They'll say, you know, you just do your best, and then one day you're going to stand in front of the man upstairs, and maybe you'll go to heaven, maybe you won't. Friends, can I tell you that if you're going to hell, that's a horrible time to find out about it? You want to find out about it now. And you want to know right now, and you can know. You can have an assurance in your heart that you do belong to him. But John didn't write this just so that we would know. He wrote it, look at the end of verse 13, so that we would continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, I know that in some of your Bibles, like in the New and Vashon Version, it doesn't say continue to believe, but it belongs there because the verb tense that John used in the original language clearly tells us that he's talking about continuing to believe. He wrote this, that we would continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, friends, you, you may have started out well in your Christian life, but have you continued to believe? Maybe you'd tell me, Pastor David, it was 30 years ago in a revival tent, and I walked down that sawdust trail, And I came down and I knelt down at the altar just as they were playing, just as I am for the 15th time. And I believed in Jesus right then. Great, praise God. Have you continued to believe? Are you believing right now? You see, that's what what we can trust in. Continuing to believe. You know, as if we continue to believe and continue to know that our salvation is in Jesus and not in ourselves, that gives us the assurance You know, if I'm trusting in what I can do or what I can stop doing in order to be saved, that's shaky ground. I don't know that I'm saved then. I mean, what if I have a good today but a bad tomorrow or a good today but a bad yesterday? I'm saying, oh man, maybe I'm not saved anymore. But if my salvation is in Jesus, then I can know, I can know that I'm saved and I can continue to believe. Friends, you've started out well. Will you continue? Let me ask the question another way. What would it take to make you give up on Jesus Christ? If this or that or the other thing was taken away from you, would you still believe on Jesus? Would you still continue to believe? That's why John wrote this. And I think God is speaking to every heart this morning and wants everybody to know two things. You can know that you have eternal life and you can continue to believe. Let's pray and ask God to do that in our hearts right now. We come before you, Lord, humbly, believing your word, trusting your word. And Father, I pray that every person in this room this morning, first of all, Lord, that they would know they have eternal life. God, I pray that you would just prevent anybody from leaving this room this morning until this issue is settled with you, that they know they have eternal life. Help them, Lord. Help all of us. But Jesus, in the same place, I I pray that for everyone who does know and everybody who does believe, that Jesus would help us all to continue. Lord, we want to continue every time. We want to know that we abide in Jesus. We want to have that sense of excitement every time we hear the true teaching of the gospel. 
The sense that, yeah, we want to trust in you all over again. Lord, that's not a way of denying that we ever trusted to begin with. It's just saying we, we want to continue to believe. Oh, Lord, help us to continue. Help everyone in this room. Friends, I'm going to ask you now, and you know, I'm not even going to ask anybody to raise a hand or to walk down an aisle, because this is personal business between you and God. But friends, if you need to know that you believe, if you need to say, I must continue, then you do your business between God and yourself right now in your heart. And Lord, I pray for everybody who needs to do that right now, that you'd help them to come before your throne and deal with you man to God, woman to God, and know and believe. Seal this work in in waiting hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.